Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So I'm still on paternity leave, but this will be the last recycled episode you'll hear. And if all goes according to plan on Thursday, you will hear the rather wild story of the birth of my son. Sneak preview, it happened in the passenger seat of our car, and there are global health implications. For now, though, I wanted to reshare what is probably my favorite interview of the 83 now long-form interviews I've recorded. Christine Fair is a respected international relations scholar who focuses on security and politics in South Asia. What I so loved about this episode is how open and honest she is about the kinds of sexual harassment she has had to endure while trying to break into a male-dominated field. So many of the women I've interviewed for this podcast allude to dealing with sexual harassment, but Christine Fair spoke more directly about it than anyone else I've interviewed. So here is my conversation with Christine Fair, first posted in January. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today is Dr. Christine Fair. Now, the conversation we have is not the conversation I expected to have when I called Dr. Fair up for an interview. Uh, Dr. Fair is an expert in South Asia, and we do have a really interesting conversation about uh, Pakistan, specifically the role of the Pakistani intelligence service and military in sort of undermining Pakistani democracy and sowing instability in the region. So, so we do discuss that for sure, but we spend most of the interview discussing Dr. Fair's experiences dealing with sexual harassment in the workplace as a graduate student, uh, and also Dr. Fair's experience in dealing with threats of sexual violence, pretty horrific threats of sexual violence, from the very subjects she is trying to study as an academic. Now, regular listeners, I think, know that I try to interview an equal number of men and women, even though this field, international relations and national security, tends to be male-dominated. There's still, obviously, women doing really impressive and incredible things like Dr. Fair. And among the impressive and accomplished women I interview, this issue of being sexually harassed at the workplace comes up more often than I would expect. Maybe I should expect it, but you know, it still comes as a pretty jarring uh, shock to me. So I just want to thank Dr. Fair for being so open and honest about uh, these experiences and how they've affected her life in career. Uh, so this show is going to kick off with a conversation about the origin story of Dr. Fair's cookbook, The Cuisines of the Axis of Evil and Other Irritating States. And for transparency's sake, I should say that we actually have this part of the conversation at the end of my interview. I just thought to put it at the beginning because it kind of sets up the rest of the show nicely. So here she is, Dr. Christine Fair of Georgetown University. 
My mother had died uh, when I was uh, 23, and I did not have a father. My father absconded when I was quite young. And the only family I had were my two brothers, uh, Joe and uh, Pork is his name. And when 9-11 happened, um, you know, Bush's response to that was, let's go invade Iraq. And my brothers, who were at the time in the Indiana National Guard, they were amongst the first to be deployed to Iraq. And at the time, you were not a patriot if you criticized the war. And I, um, it was to me, it was just, it was almost surreal the country that we had become. And I was at the time living in Santa Monica. And um, after the Axis of Evil speech, we, my friends and I, just decided, you know what? That's what we're going to do. We're going to start having Axis of Evil dinner parties. And for me. It's what got me through the year when, when my brothers were deployed. Because, you know, as, as National Guard, they, they do what regular Army does not do. They travel together. So one plane goes down, and I lose the only family I have. It, it was the worst year of my life. I, I, I mean, I was just paralyzed with, with sorrow, fear, and anger. And um, that's how I did it. Um, I would just, and I, I'm not an eater when I get stressed, but I'm a stress cooker. And we would just have these subversive dinner parties at my house, and uh, that the, that became the Acts of Evil cookbook. Actually, was these dinner parties. Any uh, recipes stand out from from North Korea in particular? I'm just kind of wondering what distinguishes North Korean cuisine from Korean cuisine or South Korean cuisine. Well, that the South Koreans don't have to rely upon the Japanese and the Chinese to give them food to cook. Huh, that's a good answer. But the <laughs> yeah. But like when I've had the opportunity, like for example in Beijing, and uh, so there, there are um, there's also one in Thailand in Bangkok. But I I didn't go to the one in Thailand. I went to the one in uh, Beijing. They do have these North Korean restaurants, and they're really funny. They're run almost like a diplomatic mission in the sense that the the waiters and the, the cooks that work there, I mean, they're just like diplomats in terms of it's very difficult to get at this post. And I was there with uh, Robin Rafel. Oh boy, a, a bunch of former USG uh, officials, and we were at this restaurant. And I remember I wanted the menu, and so I asked the waiter because the menu was just fabulous. And you just you know, stuff that you couldn't make up. So I asked the waiter. I said, um, "Can I buy this menu from you?" And he says, "No." And at one point, I said, "I will give you this one hundred dollar bill for this menu. This this laminated." menu that you can probably replace up at the Beijing Kinko's or whatever you have for like a nickel. I'm going to pay you a hundred dollar bill. And he, and absolutely not. He was, it was like, he was afraid for his life. He's like, no, no, I will get fired. No, you can't. No. Then when I tried to photograph it, he practically tackled me. So they were protecting this menu. Like it was Fort Knox. I mean, it was, it was really bizarre. And I tried under the table, and he, at that point, he was just watching me like a hawk. He's like, you know, if, if I try to steal the menu, if I try to photograph it again, he, there was no way on his dime I was getting out with any image of that goddamn menu. But, um, but the food tasted, it's the same as any other Korean. It's the only difference is they actually have food to cook, right? Uh, so how did you get into the field of international relations in the first place? Well, so I grew up in Indiana, so not exactly a place known um, for those things. Um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Chicago and, and graduated in 1991 in biological chemistry. Okay, so not quite uh, the field of international relations. Although, someone else I interviewed, Jessica Tuckman-Matthews, no. uh, is, is almost got her PhD in uh, biochemistry. 
and then yeah, I actually started my PhD in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. What what attracted you to that field? Well, I mean, I had all I had always been. I mean, that's that was in my life, my life dream actually. But my, unfortunately, um, I was doing. My mom had cancer, and at the time, uh, it it's just complicated. She was a subject of a human subjects abuse. She was a part of a clinical trial um, for a, a precursor to a cancer treatment. Um, and, you know, we were using human cell lines in our lab. And I just, I don't know, I had a moral crisis because I realized that um, that I was probably benefiting. There was some probability that I was benefiting from some other person's loss in the same way that I had. And I really just wasn't able to continue. Um, but then the other issue was that um, I was trying to, I had developed some allergies in the lab, um, very severe eye allergies. And so I was really trying to find a way of repositioning the kind of chemistry that I was doing that didn't cause me to have these these tremendous allergies uh, um, response to the reagents that I was using. And so in the end, I just ended up leaving the sciences. I, I withdrew from Yale. I knew as soon as I got there that I had made a, a bad decision. I mean, I, I don't regret it because I was here when my, when my mother passed away. Um, so I was here for the year when her when her cancer metastasized and and came back pretty pretty brutally. So I don't regret it. But she did pass away right before I started my PhD in uh, South Asian languages and civilizations, also at the University of Chicago. Um, I mean, I don't. There's. I mean, this is uh, this is unfortunately a, a story that is just so elaborate and just full of of personal personal issues that it's just it's just hard to explain succinctly. But um, I had taken a year off, um, and partly that's because of financial aid. I didn't want to start graduate school with a bunch of credit card stuff and my mom dying, so I wanted to take a year off and work in the lab to pay off my credit card debt and and to be near my mom, and. Then, of course, once I started graduate school at Yale, I realized I'd made a big mistake. And, and no sooner had I left Yale and come back to Chicago, my mom's cancer um, had metastasized. And then I think part of the, the South Asia reoptimization was happening because I had worked with many South Asians in the lab for years and developed an interest in it. And then I studied South Asian civ, uh, civilizations as an undergraduate and began studying Hindi in that year that I took off um, between undergraduate and graduate school. So, I mean, it was a fairly slow transition. Um, but I think that when I started that PhD, I, I don't think I really knew what I was going to be doing with it. I just knew that I didn't want to be in the sciences anymore. And I felt like having been a University of Chicago science undergraduate, that's all I did was the sciences. I worked in a lab the entire time I was there. I never took a vacation. I never saw the world. I did not come out of that experience a well-rounded student. I was very much the University of Chicago science poindexter. And so I think I, I took this PhD in the humanities um, in part because it was paid for. You know, in a, when you're a poor student, as I was, my family was poor. We were not well-educated. The idea of going into massive debt for schooling is kind of unpalatable. So it was free. So it didn't was cost it me anything. Paid for because there was recognized need for, uh, uh, like, an Hindi language uh, or, or South Asian language. Yeah. Specialist? So, yeah, I benefited from this program called FLAS. F L A S. Um, I forget what FLAS stands for. Foreign language. I forget what it stands for. But the other word is a uh, Title Six. 
so yeah, I was my my funding was ex- uh, explicitly was tied to the study of uh, Hindi and Urdu, and then I also had other funding to study Punjabi and Farsi. But so you know, I started that PhD not entirely sure what I was going to be doing with it, and then I also did a master's in public policy also at the University of Chicago, which also was paid for through my language study. And so I think when I began this, it was just not the sciences because I was just really um, torn because of the whole experience with my mother. And it was, and so I really was just trying to become a more well-rounded human being who was a little bit more knowledgeable about the world because all I really learned as an undergraduate was chemistry, chemistry, and chemistry, and oh, some chemistry. So it it was really just an exercise and trying to become a a better, more informed person. And then, as is is wont to happen at the University of Chicago, I had a terrible, terrible experience with sexual harassment from a faculty member. And you know, I'm very common. So I I I interview a lot of prominent women in in international relations, and this comes out like a lot, constantly, horribly. It. You know, and it's, you know, so it's actually why I didn't go to academia directly because I had had, with the exception of this very brief stay at Yale, all my experiences had been at the University of Chicago. And from, and and actually I had constant sexual harassers in chemistry as well. I mean, I will say that when I began my PhD in the humanities, I did naively think that I was going to be getting out of this environment. I remember like when I worked as a a chemist, like one night a faculty member got tenure and they celebrated by bringing a stripper to the chemistry building. And I was there in the library when that happened. And it was so gross. And by the way, I, you know, I've got no issues with strippers. I go to strip clubs. I'm not a prude, but I had a big issue with, um, that's how they chose to celebrate his getting tenure when there were women and, you know, not every woman wants to see a stripper. And that's what they chose to celebrate. And, of course, to make matters worse, to, to double, to carry out the innuendo, they brought in pallets of sushi, and the woman was going about taking yeah. the faculty member's ties and running it between her legs, and then they were going around sniffing the ties. I mean, it was, it was, really, quite, it was really quite foul. And um, I worked in a lab at the time that was the lab of the department chairman, and after that event, he was boasting that when the president of the university called him, Hannah Gray, Hannah says Gerhardt, his name was Gerhard Claus, he's passed away some, some years ago, but Gerhardt, you know, what's up with that, that uh, thing at Searle? I, I've heard from many female graduate students and undergraduate women that they're not happy about it. And, and he boasted to us in the lab meeting, and there were a handful of women there, not just my, uh, maybe there was like maybe three women in his lab at the time, um, although mostly men. And he says, yeah, I told her, sorry, I had to miss it because I actually was in a meeting in Arizona. I mean, I'll never forget that. And um, and then there was the same faculty member that celebrated his tenure with uh, the stripper. In his lab, they had glass cooling dishes. We, we would, you know, when we run experiments, we'd have these flat bottom uh, Pyrex dishes, and they would be, um, co- you know, concentric, but and one would be smaller than the other, and you would nest them, and you would put vermiculite between them to sort of like build an insulated dish. And what the, the, what the gentleman in the lab loved to do, of course, was to take Playboy centerfold crotch shots and, and put those in the, in the bottom of the, of the uh, flat bottom vessel so that when you ran your experiment, oh, well, I have Ms. July or Ms. August today. Oh, gee, maybe I'll do Ms. May. Um, you would see um, calendars of scantily clad women 
um, you know, laying across lasers in that same genre that you would have scantily clad women reclining across motorcycles or sports cars. So when I left the sciences, I mean, I, I had kind of had it, and I did have a harasser as an undergraduate. I mean, I was just done with the bullshit. And so I didn't expect when I went to the humanities that that was going to continue. Um, my first semester there, the most famous faculty member, as I was handing in my final paper, he asked me if I was looking for sexual pleasure. The uh. precipitant of this was that I had rollerbladed to campus. I was a, a big rollerblader at the time, and this was in the 90s when all of the stuff was going on with the anti, the, the basically the Christian Taliban shooting doctors that perform abortion, and of course the the rape, uh, the war crimes that were taking place in the Balkans. So one of my rollerblades had a sticker that said, "Sexual pleasure is no crime," and the other one said, "Rape is a war crime." And so apparently I had brought it upon myself, as I was told, because my, my, my rollerblades had these provocative statements. And uh, when I went to file a complaint about this gentleman, um, this most important, most prominent faculty member of my department, who eventually became my chairman, I was told that he did not break the rules. I was then asked, um, did you tell him that this advance was not wanted? And I said, no, I ran out of his office in tears in humiliation. Um, is it possible that you, Dean, might tell him that this was not wanted? And I was told I had to confront him, and I had to tell him personally that that was not wanted. Otherwise, he could continue doing it. It turns out he was quite the philanderer. Mm-hmm. Um, he, had, you know, he ended up um, shagging a woman whose committee he chaired. He also ended up getting her a job at the University of Chicago, and he became the chairman of the department where he, I believe he is still the chairman. Um, and I, you know, and I'm completely open about this. He knows this is all true. And I dare him, I dare him to, to even make a complaint about a single thing that I've said about him. Cause I will, I still, I can't believe. So in the end, what ended up happening was that he tried to get himself onto my orals committee. He, you know, he tried to get onto my, my dissertation defense and I had to fight him at every point of the way. And eventually I had to threaten to sue. But it was such a, a hostile environment that I ended up finishing my PhD remotely while working at the, the Rand Corporation. Now, you're and that at, is really, yeah. yeah. You, you're at uh, Georgetown's uh, Security Studies program now. I, yeah, exactly it, now. I mean, have things gotten better? I mean, I graduated from the Security Studies program, I guess, in like 2009, probably. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was sort of like a part-time student. It took me like three years to do the... Uh, a, a like one year program, but um, I, have things gotten any better? I mean, now that you're sort of a, a faculty member, well, things... actually, I don't, I don't see any of this happening at Georgetown. And you know, uh, you know, had I had Chicago not been such a hostile environment, I never would have gone to the Rand Corporation to flee this 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 swine. And had I not been to the Rand Corporation when nine eleven happened, my career wouldn't be what it is now. So, you know, it's one of those things where this was not a path that I chose. It was a path that I took to really flee from a really unpleasant situation at the University of Chicago. And um, so in some strange way, had had I not been so harassed, I would have done a relatively pointless PhD. I would be what probably was your PhD? Pe- in that? So uh, what, did, what was your uh, dissertation about? Um, on the novels of Bhaivir Singh, these were Punjabi political novels. <laughs> so... You know, it's one of those things where had had Depeche not harassed me, I would have finished my PhD like any other person in that program. I would have been equally unemployable. Um, but because he created this hostile environment, 
um, I fled to the Rand Corporation um, in California just to get away from him and the campus and finish remotely. And so in some sense, the career that I ended up in was not the career that I had planned. I'm not sure that I had had a planned career. But I can say this with great certitude, that had I not been harassed by him, I wouldn't be in this place. And that's, and that's one of these, I think, when you talk to women that have survived, um, you know, survive isn't the right word. When we have endured, there's a couple of responses to this. Like there were several women in my program that also were harassed by him. Many of them just flee. Many of them just leave the program and they go off and, and don't do, they just make their life and just sort of write that whole part of their life off. I was sort of fuck you about it. I'm not going to let you take away my PhD, but I'm also not going to continue to be exposed to your nonsense. And so, you know, I was pretty tenacious about it. But, um, but when you talk to women that kind of go through this, many of us do make decisions that we would not have made had we not been so harassed. And I think, and I'm one of them. You know, I basically, I, I ran an end game around him and in doing so had a very different life than what I had planned for myself. That is for sure. So what were you ended up doing in uh, Rand? What sort of uh, research were you conducting there? Well, I mean, at first, um, before 9-11, there wasn't a huge need for a South Asianist, which is a reflection of, you know, what that market was, i.e. no market. Um, so I was working on military manpower projects, which ended up really helping me because um, it's, it's been, a, it's been a, um, an intellectual lens that has guided my research ever since. Because what do you mean military I manpower? Mil- like, what does that mean, a military manpower project? Yeah, like, how, how, do mil- how do militaries recruit? How do they man a mission? How do they pay for a force? Um, so basically, you know, how do, how do, how do armies recruit and retain? And, and that, you know, there's a lot to that. Um, understanding how military organizations, um, maintain their force and how they recruit, who they recruit, how they target, um, that's really informed my understanding of how militant organizations recruit because there's a lot of similarities. But so, and I trained with a lot of economists, and so um, my entire intellectual trajectory changed from being well. I, I'm not sure it changed is the right word. So I, I, you know, I started out being very heavily in the hard sciences, then I went to the humanities, and then I came back and worked with these economists. So it just sort of added to this interdisciplinary approach that I was developing. And then after 9/11, it was pretty much all Pakistan and India. All the so, time. So you were uh, at Rand in California, you said, uh, when 9-11 yeah. happened. So probably, I mean, what the, the towers went down around 8.30 Eastern, so 5.30, you probably wake up in the morning. What's your first reaction? I mean, are you thinking, oh my gosh, well, this actually, has to have emanated from... Well, what, what's really kind of funny was that, um, I think that for many people, I mean, how old were you when 9-11 happened? I was a, a senior, no, pardon me, I was a sophomore in college. Okay, so you were older. So but, I was like 20 yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so for me, I mean, so I was sleeping, I, I was in a, in a very, uh, what's the word I want to I wanna characterize this? I was in a pretty horrible relationship with a pretty terrible human being. And I was actually sleeping on the couch because our relationship was in such disarray. We lived together. And so I was laying on the couch with my dog, and I tended to wake up early. So I was up at about 5 o'clock or 5.30, and saw, and I always fell asleep with the TV on because that's just how I was. So I actually woke up and saw the images 
like everyone did in LA who was up that hour, we were kind of confused what we were seeing. Um, and I didn't have my glasses on and I was just hearing the TV and people were speculating, but I was up when the news coverage began happening. And, um, I mean, I think I had the same, the same, what the hell is this? Is everyone else? Um, was it a Cessna? I mean, it took quite a while to figure out what this whole thing was. And then of course, as the day went on, you know, we knew that this was an Al Qaeda attack. And, um, and I also knew from that point onward that my life had changed because I was immediately getting calls from government recruiters um, because I had worked with government clients and they knew of me and they knew of my language skills and they knew that I knew Pakistan really, really well. And um, so, yeah. What was your first trip to the, the region after 9-11? Um, after 9-11... Did you go? Uh, I mean, did you go to Pakistan? Oh yeah, I mean, I thereafter? went. I went. Oh, oh God, yeah. I mean, I can't. I know I'm blacklisted now. I can't go to Pakistan now. I'm blacklisted. But oh, I went to the region constantly. I was there in 2000. I was in. I was in Iran in 2001. I mean, I I traveled constantly, um, and I went to Pakistan in early 2002. And what? So I was why in do you think Doha. You're blacklisted? Um, I presume you just like they won't give you a visa if you apply right now. Yeah, and then what they happened? also threatened me. No, they threatened me with gang rape a few years back. They really, really hate my work because, um, well, I call it like it is. I don't, I don't, I don't. My mom would, my mom would say, you don't put chocolate on a turd and call it a donut. And in Pakistan is definitely a turd, and I'm not going to call it a donut. I mean, they take our money and they kill our troops. Um, it, you can you can make that much more complicated if you want to, but. At its core, that's our problem with Pakistan. They kill our troops in Afghanistan. They take our money because they're allegedly their ally. Um, ally to help us fight in Afghanistan, but they're they're actually the problem in Afghanistan. They are not the the solution. So, Wait, so who, um, who who government officials specifically threatened to gang rape you? No. So the way this works is you get an email, and I got this email in May of 2011. And they're not subtle about it. Um, you, are, you are supposed to know that you're being threatened because they don't want you to come back. And so, but I was, again, kind of, I was kind of a bitch about it. I'm not, they're not going to really gang rape me. And I had had a, a multiple entry visa from Hussein Akani, and I had had a fellowship to go to Pakistan that summer of 2011. And I had gone, I can't, like I said, I can't say how many times I've been to Pakistan. Right. So, um, but I knew, I mean, basically my problem started with this defense attache here at the embassy, uh, here in Washington. He hated me, um, absolutely hated me. And so he actually caused much of my grief. Um, it's either he or there. So 2011, I get this email. I'm still going to go. Of course, I send it to everyone. I send it to Hussein Akani. I send it to the FBI. I post it to my social media. And my Pakistani friends called me up and said, well, you do know who sent you that email. I said, of course, I know who sent me this email. Um, I mean, but I'm also making it very clear to them by circulating it to my social media that they can go fuck themselves. So, I mean, at some point you're, if you're a woman in this business, you just sort of suck this crap right up. You know, I, I'll say I'm pretty I'm pretty thick skinned right now. I'm kind of an alligator. Um, because if you don't have thick skin, you just don't, you don't thrive in this business. And I wasn't going to be intimidated by these clowns. Then United canceled my flight as a complete coincidence. And um, the other thing that happened, Hussein Akani, who was not only the ambassador, but also my friend and co-author 
um, and collaborator, he, he canceled the meeting apropos of nothing and didn't reschedule it. And he didn't actually do the canceling. His assistant did. Then I ran into a woman from the Pakistan embassy at the state department. And she said, Chris, I don't know what you did, but you are in a lot of trouble. And she, she didn't know, but she did confirm that they had sent a circular about me at the embassy mentioning me specifically saying that no one was allowed to meet with me and so forth, which is why the, the ambassador at the, at the direction of the ISI, of course, had to cancel his meeting with me. Nonetheless, um, given all of this, um, Hussein Akani, because Who's my a, flight was you canceled. Say, Hussein Akani is, is a very prominent Pakistani official. We, we should preface. Yes. Right? It's, yeah, of course he was at the time the ambassador. Right, he was the ambassador to Pakistan at the time, but he was before he was the ambassador. He was and is my friend. Um, but he, even he had to cancel a meeting with me because of this circular that the ISI had sent. So um, I was supposed to leave on a Monday night and um, unite, or it was a Sunday or a Monday. And I remember being very, I remember actually having a very sinking feeling in my stomach. Am I making the right move? Should I just cancel my trip? Should I really take a gamble with these clowns? And in that 24 hours that the canceled flight bought me, because it took me that long to get, um, to the, you know, the, I had to get, it was the, the flight that was canceled was the DC to Dubai. So I had to get on the next DC to Dubai trip. And then I had to get the Dubai to Pakistan re, resorted. So I had about 24 hours where I was still here. And in that period, Hussein Akhani was able to reach out to me. And he said to me something very simple. He said, you have to cancel your trip. The crew cuts are after you. What does that mean? Well, the crew cuts ISI. So he essentially, um, he, he had confirmed, you know, what I had already suspected through that email that I'd received. Because I was going in June, that my trip was in June. I had received this threat um, around the week of the 20th of May. So he said, you know, you have to go, you have to cancel your trip. The crew cuts are after you. Now, you, I did. Mm -hmm. Can you peg the threat to any specific thing that you've written? Like, do you suspect that yeah. uh, one yeah, thing that you wrote? I know exactly what the problem. Well, oh, what, no, because like I said, I'm, I'm very direct. I called the ISI chief and I said, I first said, why am I on this list? What have I done? I've done nothing different that I have done from last year. You know, my views are consistent. Nothing's change what's changed why am i on this list why is there a circular about me in, in the embassy banning people from meeting me apparently except him because he's allowed to meet with me um first he denied it i said please don't, don't insult my intelligence i'm not a fool i know for a fact that this is a case i'm not asking you to confirm it or disconfirm it i'm asking you to explain it because i know it is in fact the case what had happened according to him was that he had seen the prospectus for my book and um, there, there is a there is only one person who could have given that book prospectus to him. I know who that person is, and he knows who he is. And I have already discussed this with him, and he is dead to me um, because I know it was him because he's the only one that had the book prospectus who was in the position of giving it to the ISI. So um, he, the ISI guy here at the embassy, saw the book prospectus and was angry. He said to me, you know, we, we brought you to our facilities. Um, we showed you our counterterrorism efforts. You know, we took you around this, that, and the other thing, and you've betrayed us. 
And I um, and then they were also angry that they had helped me get um, four of these publications. And I said, listen, um, what you did was you provided me your side of the story because I'm a scholar. I'm into, I am supposed to seek out your side of the story. You did not buy me. And yes, you did provide me with four of these publications, but I've assembled you know, thousands of pages uh, of my own that you didn't help me get at all. So this expectation that just because you facilitated my visiting your troops and the conduct of my research, that doesn't mean that you buy me. That doesn't mean that you automatically get, that, that you get to dictate what I think and what I say and what I write, because that's not how this works. And so that that was it. And then, well, what did the book say? Um, I mean, what was the book? It sounds like a book I should read. Yeah. So the book is called Fighting to the End, and um, the Pakistan Army's way of war, and it really just sort of exposes how long they have been using uh, non-state actors, mostly Islamist militants, um, their their development of their nuclear weapons program. I mean, it just sort of lays bare what these guys do, how they do it, why they do it, and with what effect. Well, I guess what's weird is that and, this is sort of like a known sort of open secret, you know, why did your book prompt such an aggressive reaction from them when this is, you know, stuff that's kind of out in the open? Well, I think a couple things. So one, I know Urdu. So I, I give interviews in Urdu, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's one thing to say this stuff in English where most Pakistanis can't have access to it. But to put that stuff out there in Urdu is a totally different thing altogether. Um, and then the other issue is that, you know, I do a lot of congressional testimony, and there was a hearing right before the threat on Lashkar Taiba that I, that I did. And, I mean, basically, and Lashkar Taiba, we should say, uh, is the uh, allegedly Pakistani-sponsored group that um, is active in the Kashmir region that is potentially behind the Bombay uh, attacks, Not right? potentially. Not potentially. It was behind it. We know this. absolutely know this. This is a certitude. As, as, as certain as gravity exists, we know they are behind it. So, um, yeah, so my understanding from everyone that I had heard, I mean, I, I actually reached out to an ISI contact I knew in Pakistan, and what I'd learned from the people in the ISI who did not share this person's views is that it really had all originated with Brigadier Butt, who was the ISI station chief at the time here in the embassy. Then the current, or, or his replacement, was equally hostile to me. And, and I just don't play ball with them. Um, you know, they, I mean, for example, some, some of my colleagues will go out there. They're interested, now, they're interested in getting a visa. They, they will hold their tongue. Right. They won't say the same things I say publicly. And then there is a gender component as well, because they do expect women to behave differently. I'm a very ill behaved woman. Um, When they threatened me with gang rape um, by, I will add, an entire regiment, my response was, is it going to be by an infantry regiment or a cavalry regiment? Because that's going to have a qualitative and quantitative effect on my gang rape experience. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Um, so (laughs) right so which you know you know probably was not the smartest thing to do but uh but but i'm just like that is amazing but 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 that's how these these people roll i mean has your inability to get back to uh pakistan affected your your research at all and your work no, I mean, so, so, there, so I did eventually get back to, to finish up that fellowship after things had cooled down. 
Um, How did you get like the word that it was okay to go back? Oh, I, I, I had an ISI contact in Islamabad that I, before I went back, I said, is it going to be okay for me to come back? I, and he said, yes, come back. It's going to be okay. So I went back. In it was uh, December 2011 slash January 2012. Then I could not go back. I couldn't get a visa until so Sherry Rahman became the ambassador, and then I was asked to be a Pakistan election monitor in May of 2013. And I was also supposed to teach a class at Forming Christian College. Um, I had a Fulbright to do that. I was essentially volunteering my time to teach there. And is that, is that a school in Pakistan? I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's in, pa- okay. it's in Lahore. Okay. So Fulbright was going to pay for my, my cost of living and my airfare, but I was essentially volunteering because I wanted to do it. I thought it was important to, to and it was going to be, it wasn't a controversial class. It was basically a research methods class. How do you do research? What's data? What sample bias? What's a, what's a primary source? What's a secondary source? How do you evaluate biases in data? You know, just basically research, that, you know, the kind of stuff that, that they need to learn. And so Sherry, um, was, there was all sorts of difficulties. Um, they weren't giving me a visa. And then um, Sherry, who was my drinking buddy, um, I and said to her, the ambassador, yeah, she was my, oh yeah, we, she, she likes scotch, I like scotch. But she was a friend of mine. And I said to Sherry, I said, Sherry, I don't want you to take this personally. I don't take it personally that you can't, you, the ambassador, can't get me a visa. But you shouldn't take it personally what I'm about to do. So I tweeted, I said, what countries don't allow their ambassadors to issue visas when their intelligence services say no? China, North Korea, and Pakistan. Within minutes, she called me up. She was livid. She said, you know, you've embarrassed me this. And I said, Sherry, I don't, I don't hold you personally responsible. If, if, you, if, if you were Zia al-Haq, you couldn't give me a visa. Zia al-Haq is, is the ISI chief, right? <laughs> No, no. I mean, no. I was just you know, he he, right. he was this nasty army general in oh, the eighties. Right, right, right. yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was just being facetious. It didn't matter who you were. You can't give me a visa. This isn't you. This is the the Pakistani ambassador does not control visas, right? The ISI does. And I told you, you know, don't take this personally. I don't take the fact that you can't get me a visa personally. So she she was furious, and she says, "Do you want this visa or not?" I said, "Well, yeah, I would like to go." But what I'm not going to do is, is basically, you know, kiss up to the ISI and say shit that is, that's not true just for the purpose of getting a visa. So she, and so she will go meet the ISI guy, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I didn't back down. I said, you know, my views on, on this isn't changing. You either give me a visa or you're not. I really don't care, but I'm not going to beg for a visa. And I'm not going to alter my views to get a visa. Right, so whether or not you give me a visa, I don't care. It, it doesn't matter to me. I'll I'll go to India. I'll go to Afghanistan. I've got a ten-year visa for India. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to curb my research by not giving me a visa, um, but you will curb. What you will curb is my ability to meet with people that can talk about your side of the picture, your side of the story. That's what you're going to curb. Nothing else. So I got this visa, and then uh, I got this visa on a Friday, and. I'm in Dubai on Sunday, and NDI has contacted me. They said, you can't go forward. They're, they're, they're canceling your visa. They say, if you come forward, it's going to be an international incident. Just stay in Dubai. And they were able to work out, NDI was able to work out with the interim government. Um, NDI being the look, National Democrat Institute? Yeah, who was sponsoring my, my election okay. monitoring mission. 
And they they worked out a deal with them, basically whereby I stay in Islamabad, they'll let me come forward. But what had turned out, what I learned subsequently, is that they the ISI had learned that I was going to be sent to sucker and send to observe the election. And I didn't know this. They never tell you before you go to a mission where you're going to be deployed because they don't want you telling people, right? It's operational security. So I didn't know where I was being sent. But what I did learn is that the ISI had learned from NDI, probably because they had either a mole or they had hacked into their computer systems, that I was going to sucker send. And sucker send is where um, a lot of terrorist activity is, is taking place from Lushkar Taiba. I mean, so they're, it's a big recruiting place for them. And from the ISI's point of view, they must have thought this was very suspicious that this person, in the guise of an election monitoring mission, is going to sucker send. Because, you know, they're, you know, they're not, they don't really know what election monitoring missions really do. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the red light. But here's the thing. They didn't cancel my visa, and Sherry did get me a multiple-entry visa. So um, I was furious when I came back from the election monitoring mission. And, again, I had a, a very harsh confrontation with the ISI chief, wherein I called him and his organization dumb, incompetent monkeys. I said, you should report that in your, in, your, in your cable that I called you this. If you forget, you can just use the acronym DIM. You are all DIM. So I was furious that they did this. I said, you give me this visa on Friday. Why did you bother? I could, I could have just stayed at home, right? I, you know, what sort of, what kind of mango republic are you running here? Like, who does this? It's just not professional. Grow up. But I did go back in August of 2013. It was sort of like my, my go-to-hell trip um, before my visa expired, and I hadn't known to go back. I've had a visa application sitting with them. I even got a second passport because I had a Fulbright, right, that Fulbright I wanted to use. Um, I've had a, a visa application. Um, now it's that passport's been sitting with them for almost a year. Um, can I ask, like, what – uh, and I know we're, we're uh, running off on time, but what would it take to uh, reform whatever bureaucratic structure is required to get the ISI in line and have them behave as a more, I suppose, like responsible uh, branch of, of the Pakistani government? Like what needs to be done to to ameliorate the situation? Because, I mean, you hear a lot about ISI abuses and how the ISI is, you know, and, and how they're the primary reason that Pakistan kind of plays both sides of the game, as you were describing earlier. Um, so well, what can see, be done? I don't see. So that's not my interpretation. The ISI isn't rogue. The ISI is is managed per, pretty tightly by the Pakistan Army. So the real issue, it, it's symptomatic of the of the fact that the army is the real organization that runs and ruins the country. And so, getting the army, basically, you know, making the army, um, you know, really more of a eunuch. <laughs> um, in putting it back in its place so that Pakistan has an army as opposed to the Pakistan army has a country, that's the real key. And that requires, I I just don't think that's possible for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, The civilians don't really know how to do it. Um, They're afraid to do it. I mean, they really, it's sort of like, it's like, you know, can you imagine the person that's going to say, I'm going to go put the leash on Satan? Who's going to put the leash on Satan and take him for a walk? No one. So it's um, no one really knows how to make this army serve the country as opposed to um, having the army make the country serve it. But that's really the key. Would and external factors had, like like a enduring peace with India like 
reduce no, the Pakistani military's leverage over the civilian politics? Well, yeah, in principle, which is why the army spoils every peace overture. Right? Every time a civilian tries to make peace with India, the army spoils it by doing something stupid like starting a war, beheading soldiers in Kashmir, um, initiating um, intense artillery shelling like we had this fall. So the army doesn't want peace because the army understands that if there's peace, it can't run the country. Right. Um, so yeah. that that's the big problem. And um, and they the army knows it. If there's peace, very few people are going to put up with their shenanigans and they're going to demand change. And so what the army does, the army generates these crises that that it, that basically buttresses its position that India is this terrible nemesis. And if you didn't have this big, bad army protecting you, you all would just become, a, a you know, a new state, um, a part of India. Uh, uh, well, Christine, before I let you go, is there any future research you want to plug or, or anything uh, that, that the audience should keep their eyes out in terms of your research and, and your writing? Oh, yeah. I mean, if they're interested, I mean, my, my book is called um, uh, Fighting to the End, the Pakistan Army's Way of War, and uh, it came out in 2014 by Oxford University Press. Well, uh, Dr. Fair, Christine, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was <laughs> a whirlwind for sure. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. What a lovely idea. And it's always nice to talk to a fellow Hoya. Uh, well, thank you all for listening. And now, clearly, my greatest regret in life is not to have taken her class at Georgetown's grad school. Um, anyway, thank you guys all for listening. Huge thank you to Christine for just being so open and honest with me and you know, with you uh, about everything. And I'll be back from my leave with some good stories and great episodes coming up. See you soon. Bye.